Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 26 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program, which is co-sponsored by the Institute for Global Citizenship at McAllister College in St. Paul. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming speakers can be found online at eWestminster.org. It's now my pleasure to introduce the final speaker in our fall series on America as Global Citizen. Dr. William Schultz is recognized internationally for his work on behalf of human rights. From 1994 to 2006, he served as executive director of the American section of Amnesty International USA, the world's oldest and largest international human rights organization. He's currently a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. Dr. Schultz is an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister and the author of several books, including In Our Own Best Interests, How Defending Human Rights Benefits Us All, and Tainted Legacy, 9-11 and the Ruin of Human Rights. Today, Dr. Schultz will look at Americans' human, right, human rights policies and practices in his presentation from Darfur to Guantanamo, Defending Human Rights. Ladies and gentlemen, the Westminster Town Hall Forum and the Institute for Global Citizenship at McAllister College are honored to welcome Dr. William Schultz. Thank you and good afternoon to all of you. I read not too long ago that the three most popular topics for lectures in the United States are sex, dogs, and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and when I learned that, it occurred to me that if I really wanted to be in demand as a public speaker, I should offer to lecture on the sex lives of Abraham Lincoln's dogs. <laughs> but the, the data on that topic is scarce. And so I have been reduced to giving you a speech about human rights. I'm very grateful to the Institute and the Forum that despite that, they've seen fit to include me in this distinguished series. And I'm especially grateful that they did not get wind prior to their invitation of the comment that a woman made to me after I spoke at a university not too long ago. I thought I had delivered an excellent speech, but apparently the sound system was not working too well. And after the speech, a woman came up to me and she said, Dr. Schulz, I couldn't hear a word you said this, this evening. And thinking to be modest, I said, well, you're probably not missing much. And she said, I know, that's what everybody told me. <laughs> I hope I offer you a little bit more substance this afternoon. Now, this is a confusing time for our country, what with neoconservatives spreading democracy around the world, human rights advocates who had always in the past favored the spread of democracy, suddenly wary of it, 
and foreign policy realists who had always regarded us human rights advocates as muddle-headed nincompoops now joining forces with us in mutual disdain of the Iraq war. But our problems, at least as they relate to the title of this series, are far more deep-seated than this. They even predate the Iraq war. They predate the Bush administration. Indeed, they hearken back to a strain within the American experience that came to this continent with the Puritans. And while it has often been contained for periods of time, has repeatedly threatened to engulf our consciousness, a strain that in an amusing sort of way can be captured by a little story of a mother cat and three kittens who were walking along the street one day when a large and vicious dog came up. Naturally, the kittens were frightened, but the mother cat just arched her back and she hissed at the dog, Bow wow, bow wow, and the dog startled, turned, and ran away. Kittens were much impressed by their mother, and they looked up at her admiringly, and she looked down at them, and she waved her paw in the air. You see, my darling, she said, that's the advantage of knowing a second language. <laughs> but how many Americans, either literally or metaphorically, know a second language, recognize that while America may be the most powerful nation in the world, power is always dissipated if the powerful run roughshod over the values and aspirations of the less powerful. So where did our problems begin? Well, I, I hate to join the chorus of those who blame all our troubles on the Puritans, but I'm from New England, and I'm acutely aware that when John Winthrop declared the Massachusetts Bay Colony to be a city set on a hill, he did so in order to set an example for the rest of the world, an example of piety and good government, so that in Winthrop's words, the eyes of all people shall be upon it, and men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. And what was the model that others were to follow? It was of a community governed by a church made up of those who could prove that they possessed the signs of grace. As the minutes of an early Connecticut town meeting put it, passed three resolutions, voted first that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, voted second that the earth is given to the saints, voted third that we are the saints. All those who were not saints, what the Puritans called the inhabitants, were to conform to the laws of the church, though they had no say in making them. Now, of course, the United States has long since abandoned the notion that the church ought to determine the policies of the state, but in one form or another, our self-conception as a model for the rest of the world has never left us. And when it comes to human rights, we've indeed provided in many cases an estimable model. The Bill of Rights, the abolition of slavery, the defense of Europe, the creation of the United Nations, the civil rights struggle, none of this is to be sneezed at. Indeed, had it not been for the United States, there would be no such thing as a modern human rights movement. But there are two problems with being a model for the rest of the world. 
The first is that it's incredibly irritating when people don't follow your lead. And it's particularly annoying when people who, by definition, are not as wise or as advanced as the leader, have their own ideas about the nature of government or the role of religion or when to go to war or how to protect the planet. And so the United States, while seeing itself as a model for the rest of the world, has also resented being a model that hasn't always been celebrated or copied. And the result of that resentment has been a certain contempt for the opinions of the inhabitants of the rest of the world. And the second problem with being a model or a leader is that if you are the one setting the standards for everybody else, it's all too easy to conclude that those standards don't have to apply to their author. After all, if the earth is given to the saints and we are the saints, then whatever we do must be in, by definition, in the interests of the earth. That's the source of America's sense of its own exceptionalism, its own exemption from the rules of the game. Now, often throughout American history, this sense of disdain for the world's opinion, this tendency to skirt the rules we ourselves have made, often these impulses have been held in check. But occasionally they've broken out with a fury. And that's exactly what has happened the past six years. And the result has been a radical diminution in America's reputation for credibility and righteousness. And the great tragedy is that not only has that caused thousands of people their lives, the great tragedy is that it has made it far more difficult for the United States to do the kind of good in the world that it is predisposed to do. You know, it may surprise a, a few of you who think of me as a left-wing crackpot to know that I believe that in some key respects, George Bush and the neoconservatives have been exactly right. The threat of terrorism is very real. Saddam Hussein was a vicious tyrant. Military intervention to end human rights abuses is often justified. Growth in democracy is a good thing. What is happening in Darfur needs to be stopped. But by presiding over the corruption of America's reputation for righteousness, by blowing off international opinion, undermining those very institutions, like, for all its faults, the United Nations, and, for all its novelty, the International Criminal Court. Those institutions that are designed to combat tyranny and genocide. We have diminished our country's capacity for providing leadership, even when the goals are ones we all would share. Witness our inability to rally the international community to stop the slaughter in Darfur or to bring meaningful sanctions against Iran or North Korea. But perhaps in no arena has this resurgence of Puritan impulses proven more disastrous than in the realm of human rights. And it's to that subject that I turn now, and in particular to the most significant challenge facing the human rights movement today, finding the right balance between security and liberty. When I was a sophomore in high school, I became acquainted with a religious movement that called itself moral rearmament. I didn't know a lot about moral rearmament, but I learned very quickly that its practitioners were to follow only four virtues 
but to follow these four without compromise. Moral rearmament adherents were to be absolutely honest, absolutely pure of thought and deed, absolutely unselfish, and to display absolute love. Well, for a 14-year-old, this seemed like an eminently sensible philosophy of life. And I decided to become a practitioner of moral rearmament. And for about 74 hours, I was. <laughs> and for those 74 hours, I tried never to lie to my parents or my teachers. I tried to vanquish every impure thought from my head. But gradually, it began to dawn on me that two or more absolute principles might occasionally come in conflict with one another. This was brought home poignantly to me one one Thanksgiving when an elderly relative, much beloved in the family, but renowned for her bad breath, asked me to give her a big kiss on the lips. Now, which of the virtues was I to follow? Absolute honesty or absolute love? At a relatively early age, then, I learned the hard truth that a set of injunctions, all of which are to be enforced in equal measure, are bound to get in each other's way. And this insight is an important one for human rights because the bedrock instrument of human rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, contains more than 40 rights. So what are we to do if one of those rights comes in conflict with another? Article 3 of the Declaration, for example, provides that everyone has a right to security of person. Being free from terrorism, being safe in our homes is not just a nice idea, it is our right as human beings. Every bit as important as other rights, some would say more important because if you're dead, you can't exercise any of the others. And so what do we do if, in order to defend the right to security, the right to feel safe, we have to violate some of the other rights, the liberty rights, the rights in, articulated in Article 10, for example, that guarantees due process to those who are charged with crimes. Well, the Universal Declaration provides some guidance. It says that in the face of significant threats to the public order, some of those rights can be suspended, at least for a time. And so the critical question becomes, how many limitations on our rights are necessary? If we accept the government's position, the answer to the question is quite a few. If we accept the position of most human rights advocates, the answer is virtually none. But the government, on the one hand, has not stopped to consider the full implications of its compromise of human rights, not least of all the implications for the success of the war on terror itself. And, I need to say quickly, we in the human rights community have failed to provide an adequate strategy for fighting terrorism while still maintaining optimal respect for all the other human rights. A few days after 9-11, a, a young man, a 20-year-old son of a Mauritanian diplomat named Sheikh Melanine Ould Balai was arrested by the FBI. Ould Balai spoke no English. The FBI provided him no translator. And so for many days, he was shuttled from one detention center to another. He was never charged with a crime, never told while, why he had been detained. And then after 40 days, he was released. 
He had never been given access to a lawyer or to his family. And he was deported because he had overstayed his visa. The United States had every right to deport him. But for, before he left, Uld Balai made one very telling comment to a reporter for the New York Times. I used to like the United States, he said. Now I don't understand it. I used to want to learn to speak English. Now I don't want to ever hear English spoken again. Now surely the case of Melanine Uld Balai forces us to ask ourselves, emblematic as it is of hundreds and hundreds of other cases in this country, to ask ourselves, are we truly safer for having mistreated thousands of Muslim residents or is alienating people who had previously looked upon the United States with admiration and respect, might that not be a surefire way to make the world more dangerous? When I was growing up in Pittsburgh in the 1960s, I was afraid of just two things. I was afraid of nuclear war, and I was deathly afraid of Tony Franco Guido. <laughs> now, I was afraid of nuclear war because my parents had comfortingly assured me that when war came, Pittsburgh's steel mills would be the first target that the Russians bombed. But when I learned in school that if I were to merely duck and cover under my wooden desk, I would be safe from radiation, I immediately, immediately relegated nuclear war to a much lower place on my litany of worries. But that left Tony Franco Guido, the neighborhood bully. One day, Tony caught me with a left hook to the jaw that persuaded me on the spot to go into the ministry as a profession. Now, the most obvious way to have dealt with Tony, I suppose, would have been to have bloodied his nose right back. And if I had been one to do my fighting with anything other than words, I probably would have taken that approach. But I was not confident of my skills as a pugilist. And besides, I knew that Tony had a very large family. And I suspected that if by some miracle I did manage to prevail, his brothers or his cousins would have sought me out and I would have been living in a world of perpetual fear that would have made the alternative of nuclear war seem welcome. And so, so I settled on a different tack. I made sure in the first place to surround myself with as large a group of my friends as possible whenever I scented that Tony might be on the prowl. And I decided to strike up an acquaintance with one or two other members of Tony's gang who weren't as ill-disposed toward me as he was, in order to see if I could get them to prevail upon him to leave me alone. And after a few weeks, and much to my surprise, these dual tactics seemed to work. Tony still glared at me when we crossed paths, but it was obvious that his fury has ebbed, had ebbed. I never knew exactly what had changed in the dynamics, but I, I figure in retrospect it had to have something to do with Casey Stengel's famous observation that the the secret of a great baseball manager is to keep the two guys who hate your guts away from the three guys who at the moment are undecided about the question. <laughs> and I also figure that this little parable has a thing or two to teach us about fighting terrorism because on the face of it, the best course would have been for me to have beaten Tony senseless. Sometimes you just have to stand up to bullies, but 
as Talleyrand observed, you can do anything with a bayonet, anything at all, except to sit on it. And if I had taken the martial course alone, not bothering to nurture my alliances with my friends, not bothering to find ways to reach out to the more persuadable segments of Tony's retinue, the three guys who were undecided, I might have been in for a long, nasty battle. And it strikes me that our government has gotten the bayonet work down mighty well on the war, in the war on terror, but it keeps trying to sit on the tip because the war on terror will not ultimately be won on the battlefields of Afghanistan or Iraq alone, not ultimately won even with the capture of bin Laden and his comrades. It will be won by encouraging our allies around the world to stand with us, and it will be won especially by making it as easy as possible for moderates in the Muslim and Arab communities around this world to reject the terrorist ethic. And what is the best way to do that? To persuade the three guys who are undecided at the moment about extremism, those millions and millions of Muslims who are not inherently drawn to the terrorist option, what is the best way to persuade them to reject that option? Well, surely it is to display eminent respect for Islam, for Muslims as a people, and to be a model of respect for human rights ourselves. But singling out 1,200 Muslims in the days following 9-11, every one of them innocent of terror-related crimes like Sheikh Melanine Uld Balai, that shows no respect. Forcing foreign students from 20 countries, all of the Muslim except North Korea, to be fingerprinted, that shows no respect targeting Muslim mosques in this country for radiation testing, even in the absence of evidence of a threat, that shows no respect. Holding over 600 Muslims at Guantanamo Bay, at least a third of whom have been shown to have no relationship to terrorism, and trying to deny them the protections of the Geneva Conventions, and now to deny them access to habeas corpus rights, that shows no respect singling out two Muslim U.S. citizens of all who could be singled out, two citizens, Yasser Hamdi and Jose Padilla, and trying to deny them the most fundamental rights in the U.S. lexicon of rights, the right to know what you're charged with when you're arrested, and the right to an attorney, that shows not, no respect disappearing dozens of Muslims, some like Mahar Arar of Canada, utterly innocent, into secret detention sites, or rendering them to countries where they can be tortured without compunction, that shows no respect. Nor, of course, does the torture of hundreds of Muslim detainees, not just at Abu Ghraib, but at Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan, at Guantanamo Bay, and no doubt at those secret prisons. All this has made it more and more difficult for moderate Muslims, for those who were undecided about us, to believe that the war on terror is a war in defense of freedom and the rule of law, and not, as bin Laden says, a war against Islam. All this, all this, has handed the terrorists a golden gift on a silver platter. Now, I need to say very quickly, that terrorism is the antithesis of respect for human rights. 
to stop terrorism, it may be necessary for us to adjust some of our understandings about our rights, at least for a time. We may need to reconcile ourselves, for example, to things like national identification cards. Human rights advocates have an obligation to work with the government, not just always to criticize it, to find the right balance between security and liberty. And at the same time, the government needs to recognize that the protection of fundamental human rights, the right to due process, the right not to be tortured, these are pathways to a safer world. They're not compromises with our security. They're a key element in the struggle to defeat terrorism because you don't stop terrorism by sitting on your bayonet. You stop it by using your bayonet, by using your power wisely and sparingly and fairly. Uncle Shumi escaped the Nazis during World War II from his little village in Poland. He escaped them, but just barely. And after the war, when he returned to his hometown, a group of Gentile children taunted him. Look, look, they said, the dead Jews have come back. The dead Jews, they're back. But Shumi just stood his ground, stood his ground with patience and dignity. He returned to the village, reached out to the children, began to tell them stories. And eventually, the whole village looked forward to his return. And when Uncle Shumi died, it was the six children who had haunted him the six Gentile children who had taunted him, they were the ones. They were the ones who said Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead. They were the ones who said Kaddish over his grave. In the midst of the 1994 Rwandan genocide, a girls' school was attacked by machete-wielding militiamen in the middle of the night. The teenagers were rousted from their beds about 2 a.m. and forced to line up in the dining hall in order to separate themselves. Hutu on this side, Tutsi on that, so that only the Tutsi would die. But the girls didn't move. And a second time, the commander ordered them to divide up by ethnic group. Hutu here, Tutsi there, and a second time, not a, not a little girl moved. And finally, one little girl very timorously raised her hand, of course, petrified. I'm sorry, sir, she said. I'm sorry, sir, but in this school, we cannot separate ourselves because, you see, in this school, we are not Hutu. We are not Tutsi. We are all just little Rwandan girls at which point every one of the girls was slaughtered. But what a legacy they leave, a graciousness for which the world is desperate. We are not Hutu, we are not Tutsi, we're all just little Rwandan girls. Human rights emerge out of the common misery of humankind, and they give voice to the simplest needs of the human spirit, the simplest needs, needs for things like reconciliation of those who had been adversaries, re needs for things like a fair distribution of the earth's abundance, for things like a dissipation of artificial divisions among us. They teach that every one of our bodies will perish 
They teach that evil will perish too. They help us to recognize evil, to combat it, and they teach us one thing more. They teach us to be humble in the use of our power. Lao Tzu said, conduct your triumph as if it were a funeral. And if human rights have anything to teach us about combating terrorism, it is this, that we should guard well everything that we cherish, our lives, our families, our properties, our way of life, guard them well, but that we must remember that it is only a generous heart that makes what we cherish worth guarding in the first place. And what the world most admires, what the inhabitants most admire about America. I tell you this from having visited more than 65 countries, what the world most admires about America is not our military power, not our economic might, not even our entrepreneurial spirit. What the world most admires is the vision that this society seeks to embody of a free nation that respects immigrants, that protects minorities, and that offers due process even to the most evil and heinous person in our community. Betray that, and we betray one of the most powerful resources at our command with which to combat terrorism. Betray that, and no one will say Kaddish on our graves they will dance upon them. Well, I think that America is better than that. And I know that our future and our safety depend upon our remembering it. Thank you. Thank you, William Schultz. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church and the moderator of today's forum. Our guest is Dr. William Schultz. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the co-sponsor for today's forum, the Institute for Global Citizenship at McAllister College and its president, Brian Rosenberg, for their help in making today's forum possible. This is the last forum in our fall season, but we invite you to join us for our spring 2007 series when we'll focus on critical issues in the sciences. Information will be available online at eWestminster.org. Dr. Schultz, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. Many of, us, many of us remember the legacy of Jimmy Carter who attempted to create a foreign policy guided by respect for human rights. Is such a foreign policy possible in our world today? It's not only possible, it's absolutely essential. 
Human rights is not the only issue that any foreign policy makers have to take into consideration. It isn't even always the central issue. Reducing the threat of nuclear arms, for example, and the proliferation of those arms is fundamental to the existence of the planet. But without human rights, most of the most challenging conflicts in this world, whether they be political, military, economic, or environmental, will not be settled for any extended length of time. Putting human rights at the center of U.S. policy, or at least a consideration in all formulations of that policy, is essential to our futures. If by some miracle or quirk of fate you were suddenly named Secretary of State, what first That's few... That's a nightmare, not a uh, quirk of a fate. A nightmare for you or for us? <laughs> what first Very few good. steps would you take? Well, in, in general terms, I think what is fundamental, as I tried to articulate in the speech, is that we recognize that that the United States is part of this world. It may be uh, the most powerful nation in many respects, but we simply cannot reach our goals. We can't reach our goals in fighting terrorism. We can't reach our goals economically. We can't reach our goals in terms of health concerns on this planet without the help of other people. Uh, the interdependence of this planet, the interdependence of the United States and our neighbors, even on the other side of the world, I think is beyond dispute for anyone who pretends to have even a bit of wisdom. And a Secretary of State who doesn't recognize that and act on it is not doing a service to any of us. With international respect for the United States at such a low ebb, what can we as a nation do to change that? I think what we can do is to return to the best of the American political tradition, the best of our values, uh, not to indulge ourselves uh, in some of the values that I tried to articulate to often pull us in the direction of inwardness and unilateralism and exceptionalism, but the values of outreach, of generosity, a recognition that, uh, that the rest of the world in large measure has admired this country for its educational system, for its, uh, for its values, for its political system, for the fact that when the Democrats take over the Congress, no Republican is in danger of his or her life. That doesn't happen very many places in the world. That is a, a, an enormous victory for the human race to create such a political system. We return to those values not only in our policies but in our attitudes towards the rest of the planet. Why is support for human rights considered a liberal rather than a conservative idea? This is a great irony. You know, when Amnesty International USA was first founded, one of its strongest supporters was William F. Buckley. The notion that we ought to defend fundamental human rights, like, indeed, the right to democracy, the right to a free press, the right not to be tortured. These aren't liberal values. These aren't conservative values. These are American values. Uh, and uh, I think, perhaps because uh, the human rights movement uh, has taken positions on issues like capital punishment that are usually seen to be liberal positions, uh, and perhaps because uh, human rights have uh, been demonized by some foreign policy realists in the past, such as Henry Kissinger, Perhaps uh, the human rights movement itself is at fault in some measure for failing to, to reach out to those of a broader political spectrum. But for whatever reason, I think the future of the human rights movement will be bleak if we don't understand that uh, it transcends partisan politics. Uh, 
Here's a question from one of the students in the audience. Do you believe there is a hierarchy to human rights? I'm sorry, a hierarchy? A hierarchy, a, a, an oh. order of human rights? You know, traditionally, uh, Western human rights organizations, and I count Amnesty among them, it was founded in London, and while it is today worldwide, uh, it has traditionally been predominantly a Western-dominated organization, took traditional civil and political rights to be the most fundamental and important. After all, upper-class British, uh, uh, upper-class uh, Brits were not comfortable uh, with uh, uh, with economic, social, and cultural rights. They weren't comfortable with the colonial uh, colonial uh, uh, subjects asserting their uh, rights to certain kinds of uh, economic uh, fulfillment and social fulfillment. But over the last 10 years, that's changed very significantly. And today, I think there's a growing recognition within the human rights movement that civil and political rights and social and economic on the other are utterly interdependent, that there is no hierarchy whatsoever. And if you think about it very simply, you can see that if indeed you win yourself the right to vote or a right to, the or a right to a fair trial, but you die of starvation on your way to the courtroom for that fair trial, if you win your right to a free press, but you can't read because you're illiterate, those civil and political rights don't do you much good. After the, the end of the Rwandan genocide, another student asks, how do you think the world responded, looking back on it? How do you think the world be, will be remembered after the genocide in Darfur ends? Well, I think President Clinton himself, who was responsible in good measure for the fact that the Rwandan genocide was not stopped in its tracks early on when UN General Romeo Dallaire called for the addition of 5,000 troops to stop the killing of close to a million people, President Clinton himself, called it uh, one of the greatest uh, days or months of shame of his presidency and of his life. And I think that we recognize that that is indeed true. The only Western power that responded at all through the weeks and weeks of massacres was the French. Uh, they did so for mixed motives. That had been the colonial power there, but at least they responded and they saved thousands of lives. The fact that the same thing is happening in Darfur today, I've been in Darfur, it is not difficult, it would not be difficult for the world to stop riflemen on horseback. That's the meaning of the word Janjaweed. They are riflemen, they have rifles on horseback, they don't have planes uh, except the support of the Khartoum government. They themselves don't have cannons and tanks, they have rifles, they ride horses. It would not be difficult for the international community to stop the massacres in Darfur if we wanted to. It too is already, already a mark of shame upon the international community. Another student asks about the UN General Assembly uh, is hesitant to, hesitant to declare a situation of genocide. How is genocide defined and how can we find a balance between respecting a nation's sovereignty and protecting their people from slaughter? Uh, this is a very good question and if I uh, knew the answer to this, I might be Secretary General instead of the uh, new uh, gentleman from, uh, from South Korea. The reality is that genocide, which is, uh, which, uh, is the elimination of uh, a racial or ethnic group uh, with the intent to eliminate them, and this is where the question always comes in, what is the intent behind some genocidal action? 
Uh, genocide is uh, something that the world often hesitates to declare. During the Rwandan mass massacre, for example, the United States uh, made a distinction, a Jesuitical distinction between genocide, which it says would, said was not happening in Rwanda, and genocidal acts, which it claimed uh, might indeed be going on. And the reason is simply because when you declare something a genocide, you've got to do something about it. It's quite fascinating that the U.S. Congress, the U.S. State Department, President Bush have all declared what's happening in Darfur a genocide, whether technically or not, it is that, and they've not yet done what needs to be done to stop it. And that's why the world community is often hesitant to make that kind of declaration. The United Nations itself has not declared what's happening in Darfur to be a gen genocide. But there is, there is hope on the horizon for the general principle because as a result of the Kosovo War, a UN commission and then ultimately a commission in Canada created a new, articulated a new understanding of when intervention is appropriate. It's called the responsibility to protect. And it says that even though the UN Charter may say that the international community may not interfere with what are essentially internal domestic disputes, the fact is that if a government uh, is attempting or uh, collaborating with those who are attempting to eliminate some of its own citizens, then the international community has a responsibility to trump the sovereignty of that nation and to intervene, a responsibility to protect. That if we can reinforce that in the future, the world will be a far different place. How do you counter the argument put forth by those opposed to the United States that human rights and respect for them are a strictly Western phenomenon wielded as propaganda? This is a common argument that is made by those who wish to undermine uh, the human rights regimen, that this is a Western conception that has no basis in Eastern thought, or that uh, we ought not to, to enforce human rights when they are in conflict with uh, tribal or religious customs of one kind or another. And one of the ways to respond to this is simply to ask the victims. You know, uh, it's always a, a fascination to me that when, uh, when those who defend, for example, female genital mutilation in the name of respecting tribal traditions fail to ask themselves who decided that the ritual of female genital mutilation was not a human rights violation, was a legitimate tribal practice, was it the victims? of that particular practice who made the decision? When Asian leaders suggest that Asian values mean that the community itself takes precedence over the individual and that Asian governments ought to be allowed to imprison without trial or to torture dissidents, those who have a different political point of view, my question is very simple. Did we ask the Asians who are in prison who are being tortured, they're just as Asian as the members of the government. Did we ask them whether torture was an Asian value? Almost never. The fact is that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is implicitly affirmed by every country that joins the United Nations, and many of those countries have the statutes common to the Universal Declaration in their own constitutions, on their own legal books, and we have to simply ask them to enforce them. Can you discuss the role of multinational corporations uh, and the role that corporations play in the abuse of human rights, particularly in labor, for instance? What can be done to encourage them to uh, respect human rights as businesses? 
there's certainly no question that some corporations uh, have, uh, have been party, uh, collaborators uh, in human rights violations, uh, have, for example, aligned themselves with security forces in some countries in the name of protecting uh, their investments, for example, or, or have uh, not affirmed uh, certain international labor standards uh, because of the impact uh, of the affirmation of those standards on, its, on their profits. But what is also true, I have to say, is that more and more corporations around this world are recognizing that it is in fact in their best interest to be good human rights citizens. That in fact, uh, that not only the consumers around the world, but uh, all who care about human rights, sympathetic governments, for example, uh, don't want to be in uh, bed with corporations that are human rights abusers themselves. And that in fact, uh, the bottom line will in the vast majority of cases be well served if human rights are protected. You know, those countries that invest, those companies that invest in countries that fail to respect human rights, that fail to enforce the rule of law, are themselves often subjected, uh, for example, to the arbitrary violation of contracts into which they have entered. They themselves are often the victims of uh, a failure to, uh, to respect the rule of law. And I'm encouraged by the fact that more and more corporations are understanding that their power needs to be used in a palatable and positive way around the world. There's several questions about the uh, intertwining nature of religious convictions and support for human rights around the world. Can you comment on the interplay between religions and human rights issues? Well, of course, we know that religious persecution is a major human rights crime around the world, whether it be uh, the Chinese persecution of those uh, Protestants and Catholics who are not part of uh, the official church in that country, or whether it be persecution of Baha'i in Iran. I could give you many other examples. Hans Kuhn, the great theologian, said there will never be peace among nations until there is peace among religions, and that's absolutely, truly the case. I'll also comment on this briefly from a personal point of view. As a person of faith myself, as one who was trained in the Unitarian Universalist ministry, still considers himself every bit a Unitarian Universalist minister. It takes a lot of faith, it takes a, a lot of conviction to be a human rights worker day after day, year after year, in the face of the kind of atrocities that we learn about, in the face of uh, the kind of defeats that we sometimes sustain. Uh, Theodore Parker, who is a great Unitarian minister, uh, once said that the arc of the universe bends toward justice. And it is my conviction as a religious person that history is in human hands and that in the long run, uh, the values that we affirm will prevail, that the arc of the universe will ultimately bend towards justice. That's a statement of faith. It's a statement for me of religious faith. It's not a statement I can prove to you. But the arc of the universe will bend towards justice, and our job is to cast our small might pulling that arc in the direction of the more just. That's a religious conviction, and that's a religious charge. What kind of response do you get from the evangelical community in America to the search for human rights? One of the most exciting developments in the human rights field over the 10 or 12 years that I've been directly involved in uh, Amnesty's work has been the growing uh, engagement of the evangelical community in hum the human rights struggle. Uh, this began uh, within evangelical community, uh, primarily focused on concern about the persecution of Christians. But it then expanded into a, a very active engagement with the issue of sex trafficking, which remains an enormously uh, profound problem. 
There is a superb organization called the International Justice Mission, folks who have the perspective, religious perspective we're talking about, who have joined together, not just now in work on sex trafficking, but now expanding that work as we see to issues of environmental care and issues of poverty around the world. I think uh, this will uh, be uh, eventually one of the most significant parts of the human rights movement. It already proved itself to be so in helping to push the U.S. government to resolve the conflict in Sudan between uh, those uh, in the north and those in the south who had been at war for many years. And I think rallying that community around causes such as Darfur or an end to torture, uh, which is indeed happening today, uh, will, will bear great results as well. Several questions from our listeners about uh, your views on Iraq. What would victory look like in Iraq? What can the administration do now to help the situation there, particularly with regard to human rights? Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> and while you're thinking of the answer, here's a student's question. Do you think we can get the information we need from the combatants in Iraq without violating human rights by asking the terrorists nicely? Now let me ask that, answer that easy question first. Uh, we know, we know for a fact that coercive interrogation, which is a nice word for torture, not only doesn't work, those who are most sophisticated about interrogation will tell you this, not only does it not work because it doesn't produce accurate information, but the reality is, as we have seen in many conflicts around the world, that the consequences of uh, torturing an individual go well beyond the fate of that own individual and his, it's usually a his, his family. Because the resentment that is built up as a result of uh, the, the torture of a comrade is often then spread throughout the community from which that person comes and retaliation then takes place. We've seen this in the Middle East one time after another. So I can't tell you that uh, coercive interrogation has never, ever produced an important fact or even saved a life. Perhaps it has. But on the larger balance of the scale, there is absolutely no question that it is a self-defeating practice, a self-defeating policy, and that it stains the very soul of this country that we should be engaged in that practice. Fortunately, I only have one minute left here, and so let me just say, let me just say with regard to Iraq that, uh, that whatever solution, and certainly personally I do not believe that that is more troops, but whatever solution uh, we come to in this respect needs to be one that recognizes that we did break it and we do now have responsibility for trying to repair it. And ultimately, human rights are going to be the center of that repair, a respect for human rights on all sides of the conflict. Thank and you. One final quick question, Oh, I Bill. get another question. What advice, what advice would you have for the young people in this room in regards to their roles as global citizens? Uh, well, I, one of the most exciting things about my work with Amnesty is that Amnesty has uh, 1,600 high school and college chapters uh, around the country, young people who are deeply engaged. Uh, the best thing you can do is to go on the Amnesty International website, amnestyusa.org, join Amnesty. If your high school or college doesn't have an Amnesty chapter, start one. 
and recognize that young people around the world, one of the best examples is in the overthrow of Milosevic in Serbia when Otpor, essentially young people, overthrew a government. Young people around the world have the power to make a tremendous difference. Thank you, William Schultz.